You're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hi, friends, and welcome. I'm glad you're here. I have a special guest today. His name is Mr. Steve Sloat. He is an author with a background in law enforcement. He went from being a Houston area police officer, where he worked primarily in narcotics, to being appointed deputy U.S. Marshal with the U.S. Marshal Service. Then in the 1990s, he became a national champion race car driver. He also started a successful drug and alcohol testing company for aviation clients. And now he is creating fictional stories based on life experiences. And I found this to be a common theme. You must lead an interesting life to write interesting stories. And he definitely is one of the most interesting people I know. Let me give you a preview of what Steve and I discuss. You'll notice early in our conversation, I have lots of questions about his experience as an air marshal. Because I just find it fascinating that he was one of those undercover guys on a flight that if a hijacking were to go down, he's the one who needs to stop. So I ask about his days in the aisle seat in the back of the plane. At least that's where I think they sit. <laughs> I ask him about that. Also, we discuss relationships, uh, a time that he went undercover and had his cover blown. And we discuss the state of our politics in the United States right now, which I've always been hesitant to do. But I was in a divisive mood. What can I say? Or divisive? <laughs> if you say divisive, you're probably on one side of the political aisle. And if you say divisive, you're probably on another side. Also, we talk about climate change versus global warming, potato salad, potato salad, all the good stuff. It's a good one, folks. I promise you. Sit back and relax. If you're at the gym, get after it. But uh, this is a great discussion, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So here we go. Let me welcome Mr. S Steve Sloat. Steve, thank you for coming on the show, man. Brad, thanks for having me. Great to see you, neighbor. You are one of the most interesting people I've ever met. Well, obviously, you don't know too many people, but, <laughs> but I've got to say, I've had a fun and interesting life thus far. You have. So you were a deputy U.S. Marshal at one time, correct? I was. I started, uh, spent two years in narcotics here in Houston area. I was appointed deputy United States Marshal with the Department of Justice. Uh, I'm embarrassed to say it was... Uh, I was appointed during uh, Jimmy Carter's administration, but proud to tell you that I was reappointed twice by Ronald Reagan's administration. When did you decide that you wanted to do all that? I was in uh, in high school, and I got I was out at a park one night, and a couple of Marines uh, just come back, back from training jumped me, and I was fighting them off, and all of a sudden one flew one way, one flew the other. I looked up, there's a Houston police officer named Tiny Roman. He was six foot ten. Carried a machine gun, by the way. And uh, anyway, he got me out of the deal. He took me to coffee, and he said, you were doing pretty good there, lad. He said, why don't you become a police officer? And so I joined an Explorer Scout post sponsored by the Texas Department of Public Safety and went on to get a bachelor's degree in criminal justice, and that's that was my launch into law enforcement. So you transitioned from that into being a deputy U.S. marshal, Sky Marshal? Yeah, I was. Uh, I met several deputy U.S. marshals who recruited me into, into uh, Department of Justice, and uh, – I had a great job. I spent most of my time in federal fugitive warrant investigation, which uh, took me all over the country. And uh, in 81, I got a master's degree in business administration from U of H Clear Lake. 
and did my master's thesis. It was a statistical model that predicted federal fugitive apprehension. And so I, I was basically the administrator for a couple of the, the uh, uh, strike, strike force operations. And uh, anyway, from there, I launched into, I, I worked Interpol and, and traveled all over the world. So it was a really great job. Well, you were trying to predict fugitive behavior? <laughs> yeah, I started with, uh, I evaluated 3,500 cases for 41 case variables. And we plugged that into the computer. We tied in U of H uh, computer system with Stanford Research Institute in California. It came out showing there were 18 variables that were predictive. And so it's basically a mathematical model that you plug in. You evaluate a case for presence or absence of these investigative data, and it gives you a, uh, it was a, a number from positive to minus how probable the arrest was. And so I would assign cases based on the uh, highest probability of, of, uh, of arrest. That's interesting. So what is the primary responsibility of an air marshal, a sky marshal? Well, that's a sub. Uh, at back in the time, sky marshals were a subset of U.S. marshals. Uh, we were assigned to domestic flights, uh, typically starboard uh, side rear seat of the aircraft. So we could look all the way up the aisle and uh, we would interdict uh, uh, uh you know, skyjackings. And our training was held both at the Fleetsy, which is the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, as well as at Ryan Field in, in Arizona, where we actually were onboard abandoned aircraft practicing where to shoot and where not to shoot. Uh, the program has now evolved in what's called the Air Marshal Program, which is multi jurisdictional, multi uh, agency. And they're assigned to mostly jumbo flights, uh, many of them international, um, with a whole team going on board. Uh, but anyway, it was a very effective thing back in the 70s and 80s when we had uh, uh, hijacked. I'll tell you my funny story. We had a, a gentleman with Delta Airlines who weighed about 140 pounds. Uh, and we were teaching people how to use uh, flight attendants, how to use their uh, tools at hand. And he was on board a Delta flight out of Atlanta to Miami. And a guy got up in first class and pulled out a Molotov cocktail, which we never figured out how he got on board, <laughs> held a lighter and said, I want to go to Cuba. And this gentleman picked up a Halon fire extinguisher and shot this guy in the face with it for such a length of time. The guy, he, he died. He suffocated. The Halon went down his lungs. And it's heavier than the air. It suffocated him. And he, uh, he died. And uh, my understanding was the entire cabin clapped and applauded him. He was sent to the White House and was congratulated by President Reagan. <laughs> so going back to your training, you were taught where to shoot and where not to shoot. When you're boarding a plane, do you know who's carrying and who do, who's not? There's a form all law enforcement officials uh, to fill out called LEO, law enforcement officer armed. It's given to the captain. The captain has to know who you are and where you're sitting at that time. And for normal flights, today it's the same. The air marshal program now, the captain on the flight crew does not know who's armed and who's the air marshals. The reason being, if somebody... Uh, captures a cabin crew member and tortures them, they don't want to give up the air marshals. Do you have to wear a coat to conceal your weapon? Generally, yes. Mm. Uh, we used ankle carry when I was uh, sky marshal back in the 70s, 80s. Uh, but, I'm, yeah, they wear coats. But now I understand that the crew, the uh, air marshals go on board and hide their stuff, as we call it, and get back off the plane, and then they reboard with the general population. Did anyone ever suspect that you were an air marshal? Like, especially sitting in that back of the plane aisle seat, did they ever say, hey, man, are you the marshal? No, never did. <laughs> I did try to pick up a girl. No, I digress. Uh, but you check in for the flight just the same way that anyone would so that you don't blow your cover? 
now they do. Back in the day, we had to give the form to the flight attendant who gave it to the captain, and we boarded prior to anybody else. Do they still sit in the same place where you sat back of the back of the plane? I couldn't, nor should I say. But the, it seems like the entire flight crew would need to be aware of where those folks are sitting, right? Because they have training too, and it seems like they wouldn't want to screw things up. Again, if, if the if a, a hijacker got hold of a flight crew member and tortured them, they would give up the position if they knew who the air marshals were. What sort of qualifications did you need in terms of shooting? Like, were you a, a high marksman? I was. Yeah. It was called distinguished marksman. And But then you get on these uh, derelict planes out of Ryan Field, and they tell you where the hydraulic lines. This is, again, back in the day before we had fly-by-wire. But there are certain areas you could not shoot at. Plus, we had special ammunition. Uh, I carried what's called a glazier round. And it was uh, kind of a blue, flat-tipped Teflon head. And it had shot in it. Uh, I don't know how many pieces of shot, but it was decided to go into something one inch and then expand and, and blow up. So if I shot somebody and hit their arm, for instance, it would not travel through their arm and go th into the side of the aircraft. Uh, it would go in their arm and blow up, take their arm off. Uh, but there's special ammunition for, for uses of Sky Marshal. What percentage of flights do you think have Sky Marshals on them? I should not and could not say. Are they on both domestic and international flights? Back in the day, they were on domestic flights only. Today, my understanding is they're on international and domestic flights. What's your take on all the crap we have to go through at security at the airport? Well, I think it's really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it really is to check the little blue-haired ladies, and, and, and yet the people with burkas walk through with, with impunity, and uh, and nobody even knows if they're women or men and what they're carrying underneath their their caftan. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's gone a little bit crazy. And the TSA uh, is now the largest employee union in the world. Um, and these people are grossly underqualified, in my opinion. I've watched them. And it just, uh, frankly, pisses me off. Is there a country that we should emulate, you think? I'd have to say Israel. I remember uh, I got married in Copenhagen, Denmark, in 40-something years ago. I remember watching El Al flight land. And there was basically a tank at every four, every corner plane. And it's and a uh, armed military person every 30, 40 yards, and they had they had uh, explosive detectors that would sniff air back then, 40-plus years ago, and they had absolutely no hijacking ever in their history, none. What should a civilian do if they see a disruption in the on the flight? I, at what point should they take action? That's a hard question hard uh, question to answer brad i i will tell you if i'm on a flight and i see someone running down the aisle they're gonna get tackled and you know there's enough uh, uh people like me that would help me do that uh there's no reason anybody should be running down an aisle on an aircraft in flight people interfering with flight attendants that's one issue flight attendants are trained to deal with that uh in fact i'll tell you a funny story i flew to europe one time i was doing an interpol investigation and a lot of the north sea oil field workers are going out to work for 30 to 60 days nonstop and so they drink like hell when they go over there they get drunk and because they know they're not going to drink for the next 30 days i saw this big old guy being very verbally abusive to this english couple sitting next to me and i went to the the concierge the, the lead flight attendant who weighed about 160 pounds and i said do you need help and he says no thank you and he leaned up this big old guy and said something's here and that drunk guy sat down and shut up to this day i don't know what the guy said he ought to copyright that and sell that to the sky marshals <laughs>
<laughs> Do you find that uh, Asian flight attendants are prettier than American flight attendants? <laughs> Brad, that's a loaded question. And they're all pretty. They're all pretty, lad. I flew f- quite a bit. Uh, one of my cool deals I got to do, I was a consultant to the Continental Airlines, and I ended up with a contract doing all their drug and alcohol testing at 81 airports around the world. So, yes, I traveled a lot, and I saw a lot of flight attendants that were very pretty. And then I saw one that was very pretty. It turns out it was a guy. <laughs> Where was so, that? That was here in Houston. Was six foot one. The problem is, the issue was back there in 1994, when I have a, an employee testing for, for drugs, which is your analysis, who, which bathroom did I send them into? And we won't go into the issue of that, but bottom line, Anyway, I got to fly a lot, and uh, yes, there's lots of lovely flight attendants. Miriam and I had a membership at a really nice gym in Chiang Mai, Thailand, and there would be guys that went into the women's bathroom all the time. So we'd show up at the gym together. She would go into the women's bathroom, and then I would watch a dude go into the bathroom. Now, he was wearing what looked like shoulder pads and a sports bra, but typically Asians don't have body hair. And so it's real easy for them to pass as women. And what are you to do? And I, so I asked Miriam, like, hey, what are you doing in there? And she said, well, I just make sure I go into the stall to get dressed. Uh, but that it was very common there. And we're, we're talking about like a fancy lifetime fitness type of place where dudes were going into the women's bathroom all the time. But I, I think it's uh, the, the reason I asked which country it was is because in those Asian countries, especially Thailand, for whatever reason, there are lots of lady boys. Huh. It seems like they have higher. Or, no, I should say. It seems like they have lower standards for flight attendants nowadays. Because of uh, things like the ACLU. And, for instance, if I'm at my age of 64 and overweight, I want to be a flight attendant. They don't hire me. I'm going to file a lawsuit and probably win. Uh, used to be their standards. And, and I'll tell you this. My issue, flight attendants, they are there not just to serve drinks and coffee. That's a side thing. They're there to save your life in the event of emergency. They're trained for that. They need to evacuate that airplane in 90 seconds. In Guam and Saipan, they had to do it in, in the ocean in 90 seconds, do the evacuation. Uh, most of the people I see today could not get you out uh, of an aircraft if they had to in, in five minutes. So I think we've somehow we've forgotten the purpose of flight attendants are for safety. Speaking of safety, what were your thoughts when you heard about the Kobe Bryant crash? How could something like that happen? Because of the pilot, my understanding is, the pilot flew into fog and did not know where the ground was for some reason. My first thought, I'm, I'm, I'm an old cop, and uh, the fact he was a rapist, he was, uh, well, we won't go to that. But bottom line is uh, uh, it was a shame that he lost him and his daughter. And actually, a former University of Houston uh, baseball coach is on flight as well. Uh, but the pilots choose to go into adverse weather, and uh, the outcome was, was it killed a lot of people. What about Sully? You have an opinion on Sully? The yeah, guy who landed in yeah. the Hudson River? I, that guy, I, I've listened to a lot of tapes. I was, a, again, a consultant to Continental Airlines. I've listened to a lot of tapes of planes going down to sure death. And the pilots just meticulously going down their checklist. Me, I'd be screaming. I'd be <laughs> screaming, <laughs> peeing on myself. But they'd go to this checklist until the time they hit the ground. And so Sully, they were doing that. And they were doing it for a water ev- evacuation. So he's you know, you know master pilot. I know. A lot of pilots have said they would have done things a little bit different, but bottom line, he saved a lot of lives. If a plane is going down, would the captain let the people in the back know and coach that they were going down? They have to. They have to tell you to, to take your position. They have to tell the flight attendants. Flight attendants then tell you to take the crash position, which is your head between your 
legs and kiss your butt goodbye is kind of thing. But bottom line is, uh, you know, that's the safest position to be in. Probably in the case of the Kobe Bryant helicopter crash, it was it was probably instantaneous. They probably didn't have warning, right? Because didn't they hit the top of a mountain ridge? Uh, that's my understanding. Yeah. That, that would probably be the best way to go. If you got to go. Yeah. What was the biggest scare you had on an airplane? I uh, flew into Newark. Uh, again, as a consultant of the Continental, I flew four or five days a week. Flew into Newark one night, and the crosswinds were about 40 miles an hour, which is a little bit above what's normally acceptable, except this was a DC-10. This plane was pitching and yawing to the point there was a tenured captain, a gray-headed captain sitting beside me in first class, and he was gripping the arm armrest, looking left and right out the windows. He was concerned, and that's when I got concerned. And the plane landed, straightened up, boom, perfect landing. As you exit the aircraft, they're usually the captain of the co- uh, uh, the first officer standing there greeting you as you leave. And it was this female pilot stood five foot nothing. And I said, thank you, sir. And she said, you're welcome. <laughs> do you think it's okay to recline in a seat? I do. And I tell people when I get on board, I said, you know, I'm tired. I'm going to go to sleep. I'm going to be reclining my, my seat. I tell them. I don't need their permission because it's my seat. I paid for it, and that's my space. But uh, you're going to get me going on this stuff. People are way too sensitive to these days. and, and uh, uh, But that's my space. I paid for it. It's their space, too. But they have a, a, a table that, that drops down in front of them. They can put the laptop on no matter how far back the uh, the seat uh, reclines. And they study that, by the way, when they build these aircraft at Boeing. There was a viral tweet the other day about there was a guy in the back row that started banging on the seat in front of him because the woman reclined and he was since he was in the back row he couldn't recline but i'm with you they recline for a reason i think you should be able to recline but we need to probably develop some etiquette around this to where we at least give them the courtesy of hey i'm about to put my seat back that way you don't spill your coffee or whatever but if you recline the person behind you should be able to recline and the person behind them. If you're in the back row, hey, it sucks for you, but maybe you should have booked your ticket earlier. It's the only it's the only <laughs> row on the plane that you can't you can't recline and yeah, book your book your ticket That's a little true. earlier. I also remember going on a flight to Bahamas with my dad, and there was a kid sitting by me kicking the back of my seat for two hours. And I finally got up and, and uh, had a talk with the, the parent and I explained that they need to stop kicking. The kid did not stop. So I got the flight attendant, and they, they uh, were able to move their seats and stop it. But, uh, yeah, that's an issue on a flight because you pay for the space and other people incur in your space. It's uh, not fair. In 2017, we didn't have one death in a commercial airline. It's it's crazy how safe they've gotten over time. Yeah, not, not in this country. There are deaths in other countries, but not, not in this country. Pilots have to go through recurrent training every day. Pilots that are 10 or 10 years have millions literally millions of dollars worth of recurrent training that the airlines have invested in them probably the safest airline in my opinion is southwest airlines they operated for many many years in 19 say 1992 i think a cessna 172 at love field turned into and hit one of their planes on the tarmac that's the first ntsb reportable incident that they ever had but their pilots are mostly mil- ex-military those planes used to come out uh from boeing they'd land a 737 to dallas they'd take out the autopilot those pilots were hand on you know, on the steering wheel training. They were just very highly trained. Never had an accident. The flight that went down in Germany, it was a suicide pilot. This was probably three years ago. I think because of that, they changed the rules to where they had to have two pilots in the in the uh, cabin at all times. Or in the cockpit, sorry. Yeah, they, 
they've uh, they've had had that for many many years. It used to be uh, captain, uh, first officer, and a uh, engineer. That hadn't been. They actually they create aircraft now that only require two people in the cockpit. The only exception now is when they have to go to the bathroom, and that's limited to four minutes, five minutes. Because of your background in law enforcement and being a sky marshal, did nine eleven impact you really, really hard? I think it impacted all of us pretty hard. It's it's uh, it was terrible what happened. It, it did create a number of changes. For instance, the cockpit doors now are almost impenetrable. It, it's uh, you're not going to get in the cockpit anymore uh, and do what happened there. But so it made us much more aware and it increased the security protocols to keep that from happening again. As far as watching people. For the sake of Allah, flying planes into the World Trade Center and into uh, the Pentagon, and, and uh, uh, there, there's no comprehension. There, there's there's no justification, no comprehension for that at all. Well, they think they're getting 72 virgins. It's, well, in this country, they're getting 72 Virginians. That's called a jury. <laughs> Rat bastards. Oh, sorry. When, when you fly now, do you make sure to get an aisle seat or, or sit in a particular spot? Uh, I like to sit in the middle of the aircraft. It's the safest. When you look at the history of aircraft, uh, accidents in the front and the very back are uh, uh, least probability of living. So I sit when I can over the wing. Otherwise, sit where I have to sit. I want to talk about something I read online. There was a story about, I don't know if you were investigating Scientology or Scientology was investigating someone and hired you. You were living in the woods with the cover of writing a book. Is that right? Uh, that's correct. It was bottom line. It was, uh, I had some friends, ex CIA guys I've worked with years ago, had a private investigation firm. They hired me to do an undercover operation and somebody who'd been affiliated with Scientology lived out in the country, North San Antonio. And I got the property next to him, put a trailer on to try to monitor this person. I can't really go into the details of why, but there's a lot of really heinous things that happened to people who who left Scientology, and I was there to try to investigate that. Uh, but yeah, that was a pretty crazy deal. People who were leaving Scientology were mysteriously dying. Is that right? <clears throat> they were disappearing. For instance, Lee Remini, who's the star of King of Queens, I believe. Yeah. I met her during the deposition after that. she uh, Her sister married the president of Scientology and then was never heard of from again. Her sister married the president of Scientology and was never heard from again. So nobody knows what happened. And that's, I, and I can't really get into the reason I, my undercover op, uh, purpose was, but just to say there's a lot of weird stuff. And uh, uh, so uh, there was a huge lawsuit after that. My cover got blown. And, uh, and that's that. I can't really talk any more about that. When you Google the story, there's a picture of you in the courtroom. So you had to show up to court. Oh, yeah, it was a $550 million lawsuit. And everybody involved in my side of the deal had lawyers. So you walk in the court, there's 19, literally 19 lawyers in the, uh, they, they put them actually in the jury box and uh, my side of the court. On the other side was the, the bad guy and and, uh, and two lawyers. So it was just a very odd thing. And you run into those kind of things working, kind of specialized undercover operations. But I did. My cover was writing. I, it, I was an author, and uh, I was completing my second novel. And so my excuse for being up there was uh, was writing the novel. I actually joined the Chamber of Commerce and was giving talks on writing fiction novels, and uh, hoping that my target would show up and uh, become my new best friend. Uh, 
but I was actually going to pay pretty good to, to, to write. <laughs> so, yeah, because you had to keep yourself occupied during the day, I would imagine. Day and night. And uh, yeah. In the article, it said that the way your cover was blown was they found cameras, right, that you had set up to monitor that person, the target? Uh, yes, there were, there were cameras, but there were cameras also facing the other direction. Uh, but th- this, this person had been burned before. He was very, very uh, acutely aware of his surroundings and uh, kind of hyper aware of his surroundings. I did complete that book, by the way. That book came out last year. What's the, it called? The Children Whispered. Is that the one that I read? Yes, it is. Okay, it's set in Bel Air, right? And kids disappear. You probably don't want to give away the entire story, but tell me a little bit about the book. It's about a specialized Montessori daycare designed for four-year-old kids. And they, the, uh, Bel Air and West University are very yuppie, yuppie areas of uh, cities within Houston. And all these hundreds of parents vie to get their kids in this new concept daycare. And they finally selected 25 best kids, biological, uh, genetic, uh, mental superiority. And parents take their kids to the daycare the first day, and they watch them on the Internet, go pick them up at 6, same goes second day. Third day, they take the kids, they're, they watch them on the Internet, and they go to pick them up that evening. Uh, and they drive in the parking lot, and there's two utility poles with wires hanging down. There's no buildings, there's no kids. The entire crime scene has gone. As it says on the back of the book, then she gets much, 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 much worse. It's a very good read. I read it in March of last year when I was going to interview you, and we just never happened to be in town at the same time. So just a little background. The reason I know Steve is because he and I are neighbors, or at least we were neighbors. I have a property in West Houston, and we I lived in um, – it's now a rental property, but I lived there for several years, and – Um, Steve and I would talk all the time and I wanted to get him on the podcast at the same time that I was reading the book. I featured it on my now reading section of the blog. Tell me the name of the book again. I'm sorry. That one's called The Children Whispered. Okay. And if people wanted to purchase that book, where would they get it? www.steveslote.com. That's S-L-O-A-T. Or you can go for the uh, ebook on Kindle, uh, Amazon Kindle for The Children Whispered. And if people Googled you, they'd probably get your books and they would also see that story because I Googled you in preparation yep. for this yep. interview. Oh, yeah. It never leaves, that story. Yeah. <laughs> so you're still dealing with it? You said it's a $550 million lawsuit. Oh, it was settled uh, after six months. The The lawyers that the bad guy hired, they couldn't carry the lawsuit any further. They just dropped it. And, uh, I would think because of your law enforcement background, you probably get propositioned a lot to do detective-type work, right? I do, but I don't really do much of that anymore. I, I My character in all these books, uh, and I have a, uh, two books out. The third one's coming out this summer. My character is Trevor J. Parks. And coincidentally, he happens to be a former deputy U.S. marshal. And by the way, also a race car driver, which I did for 10 years. Now, the difference is this. People ask me all the time, is this an autobiography? Well, this character is six foot one, piercing blue eyes, and good looking. Clearly not an autobiography. <laughs> so, uh, but, uh, but I'm able to bring up. Uh, cases and things for instance um uh, i think book number five has this character recruited by the cia to an operation and they they take him to tokyo and his cover for his operation he's introduces a particular type of race car to the japanese market well that's the car i raced and uh then of course it takes you from there to guam and saipan and big drug smuggling thing but uh but i'm, I'm able to bring a lot of the things that i did uh factually into fiction world 
Yeah, they say to be a good writer, you need to live an interesting life, right? It gives you interesting material. Did you document your life throughout? I, I never documented anything. I, I have a pretty good memory, but when I started writing, I, I met a, a best-selling romance novelist. And, of course, I don't really read romance, but she had 46 million books of print, so I respected her opinion. She said, you need to read a best-selling novel in your genre every single week. And I did that. And for the first four or five years, I kept – I finally read a book that was a best-selling novel, and I thought, wait a minute. Mine's better than that. And at that point, I knew I was getting uh, to where I, could, I might be in the area of getting to get published. So you mimic your favorite author's styles? Uh, I'll go this far. I, I love James Patterson. I love him for short chapters, three or four pages. And after I finished the first novel, uh, which is A Day to Die, I went back and it went from 85 chapters to 105 chapters because I suddenly realized these chapters are too long. I cut them up. I think I have a six-page chapter is the longest I have. But uh, it, so I emulate that style because I admired being able to read the chapter, put it down in, in five, ten minutes. and, and uh, That's exactly right. I, I It's coming back to me now. When I would read your book, the transition to the next chapter was great. It, it keeps you from putting it down. So you learned that from James Patterson? Yeah, James Patterson's a master at that. Any other favorite authors that you have? Uh, I now have uh, – uh, I stopped reading Tom Clancy 15 years ago um, until I found out when he passed away six or seven years ago that a friend of mine, a former deputy U.S. marshal, who retired up in Anchorage, Alaska, named Mark Cameron. Actually, his real name is Mark Ote, O-T-T-E, but he goes by Mark Cameron. He's now writing the Tom Clancy series. Um and so I'm, that's back on my, uh, on my must-read list. Any, Oath of Office is the last book that he wrote. He's working right now. He's a Roatan, South Pacific, completing his, uh, I think, third Tom Clancy novel. That's one of the cool things about being a writer, too, is a lot of times you get to travel to gather information. Do you have any plans to travel? I do. My third novel, which is called Stratosphere, F-E-A-R, is due out this summer, and then I'm Going on to the fourth novel, which uh, is going to take the reader to uh, Copenhagen, Denmark. And this is, uh, uh, I was married to a Dane, and I lived in Copenhagen for a while. But it's there's a lot, of, a lot of State Department, a lot of spook stuff that happens in Copenhagen. So that's going to be a major scene in the fourth novel. Uh, so I will be traveling there for a month. And uh, other than that, it's, it's, it's from memory, because I've traveled. I've been very blessed with Continental Airlines to, as their consultant to travel all over the world. When you're a sky marshal, do you get sky miles? <laughs> no. In fact, there's laws against that. You go to jail now. If, you, if you're in a government, you call GTR, government travel request, and, you, and if you got sky miles, you're going to jail. Seriously. Copenhagen's probably changed a lot since the last time you've been there, huh? I got married there 42 years ago, and at that time, they had open borders and a huge amount of Pakistani immigrants had moved there because of their, their uh, free health care and their social welfare system. And I understand now it's, it's, uh, it's almost unbearable there. My daughter went there last, this last year, and it's almost unbearable with overpopulation. And you have a girlfriend now? I do. Eight years. She gets sainthood this year. Eight years with me, anybody gets sainthood. <laughs> but, delightful lady. Uh, so I've been very blessed. I... Uh, and so you're a writer. Does that mean you're sort of semi-retired? I'm semi-retired. I do some volunteer work, but yeah, I, and I write at night, uh, three hours every night. Uh, sometimes it's one page, sometimes it's half a page, sometimes it's four pages. Um, I have 17 books outlined. Um, 
first book came out five years ago called A Day to Die. That's a thriller. Uh, I give a lot of talks to Rotary Clubs and so forth, and they ask me, how do you write fiction? And I tell them, I, my book started as nonfiction. My first novel, uh, in 1997, I worked on a 312-year-old French shipwreck off the in Matagorda Bay off the coast of South Texas. And the Texas Historical Commission had built a cofferdam around it and pumped the water out. So there's a big empty hole in the middle of the bay from which they withdrew 1.5 million artifacts. I got to volunteer for a week on that. In the very bottom, we found a skeleton so preserved had brain matter and bone marrow still in it. And at the time, let's just say an airline, a Houston-based airline, had uh, breached a contract with me on doing uh, drug and alcohol testing. And I thought, well, what happened if a disease reanimated out of the shipwreck? And, and then it traveled all, all, all over the world as a result of this Houston-based airline. And so the story, A Day to Die, was born. And it's kind of like the movie Outbreak with Dustin Hoffman, and then the movie Contagion, and you take that and multiply it by 100. Um, so people down all over the world, uh, the idea is to find the source. And the, uh, it's a busy, busy book, a lot of technology, a lot of nuclear plants, uh, air, jumbo aircraft almost crashing, a 26-year-old female heroine saves the day. I mean, it's just a busy, busy book. Um, then the children whispered came out uh, last year. Which is your favorite book? That you've written? They're all both my favorite books. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm working on uh, the Stratosphere right now. Um, I have 17 books outlined. I'm moving number 17 to number four position because it's, I'm really excited about getting that book out. Um, and in fact, I will tell you this. Uh, I get asked how you come up with the ideas. 1977, I was appointed U.S. Marshal. We didn't even have, there was no fax machines back then. So my credentials had to go to Washington and come back. So in the meantime, they put me in charge of the federal grand jury. So I had a grand jury in one room, I had witnesses in another, and I'm sitting looking out the window all day. I watched them build the Bank of America Tower downtown, and I'm at the fifth floor, watched them try to put a what's called an I-24 beam in, and they spent all day, couldn't get it in. So at four o'clock, they came up, cut two inches off the side, put it in, welded it. So I told my uncle, who was the Dean of Architecture at Rice University, uh, Dr. Bud Moorhead, he said, that's not good because whatever was the problem at level five, imagine how bad it would be off at level 60, uh, 60 floor. And so it bugged me all those years. So I thought one night, what, what if a terrible tornado hit this building and it collapsed at level five and took out 400 people? Uh, the fault would be laid on that company that did the, the put the bad girder in. And so book number four is based on that. And uh, what I've just told you takes you to chapter three. The rest of the story is about what they're going to do to get that retired deputy S. Marshal back to Houston to testify what he saw. So imagine the millions of dollars would be spent trying to keep him from coming to testify. I can sense the passion in your voice. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite part of writing? Uh, cre creating the, the, the plots and creating the subplots. And uh, I will tell you, it's dog work. A lot of it's dog work. Uh, thank God for word and for the spelling correction and, and, uh, there's uh, several programs now available that will help you with diction uh, syntax. But um, I just like creating the story. And at some point, I'll, I'll have a writing assistant who will, who will write the, the verbiage when I, I come up with the plot and outline, and, uh, which is much, much like uh, which is Tom Clancy in his last two books when he was live. He had a staff of six people. He would record things and hand a recorder, and they'd write the book. Mm. Ryan Holiday is a popular author right now. He's written a lot about stoicism. His most recent book is Stillness is the Key. 
He's also written The Daily Stoic, The Obstacle is the Way, and I think a few others. Perennial Seller, maybe has six or seven books, but I know he started as Robert Greene's apprentice. And so do you not have anybody that works under you? No. You don't pay anybody to help you at all? No, I don't. And, and uh, for instance, um, it, it takes – it, it takes flow. It's almost impossible to get an agent today. And it has been for many. For instance, Tom Clancy did not get an agent for seven years. John Grisham, five years. It's almost impossible. What the business model has changed in the last 20 years to the point where agents watch Amazon and see who's got three, four, five books out there doing well. And then they just approach the writer. Uh, but it's unfortunate because you don't get any volume. You don't get volume. You can't make a living writing books anymore uh, until you get that agent and get that major publisher. So do you need to be pretty much independently wealthy or your wife needs to have a good income in order for you to start writing? Uh, I, I, I can't answer that. I can just tell you I've been very blessed with some business things I've done in the past. I have, you know, uh, investments to, to rely on. But um, it's not something you want to get into thinking you're going to get published in six months and make a lot of money. I promise you that much. What are your favorite things to invest in? Uh, we have a family trust that does most investing. I was going to take a two-day course in Austin called Scribe. It was founded or co-founded by Tucker Max, and it's going the self-publishing route, but they help you with everything. And I remember reading as part of their services that they will help you to schedule a book tour and help you with the marketing and help you to encourage your friends to write Amazon reviews. I would think that Amazon reviews are as important as pictures when you're trying to sell a house. Is there anything that you can do when you go the self-publishing route to ensure that people don't poo-poo your book on Amazon or, or encourage people who have read the book? Like me, I've read the book and I enjoyed it. I haven't written an Amazon review. Well, damn you, Brad. I know. Well, <laughs> you're being you're coming on the show for me, so I, I owe that to you, so I'll put it on my list. Well, but, the... Uh Issue yes, Amazon is the is a, I think it's like eight thousand books a week they add to Amazon. It's it's absolutely an incredible marketing machine. Um, the problem is once you get to the point of having a book finished, most people have exhausted their financial resources. They've published a book. Amazon will sell it for you. You can fulfill and mail it out yourself, or they can have it printed. And by the way, I don't trust their printers. They don't do a very good job. But uh, uh, they're. If you have some money, they will actually, for a fee every month, market your book for you. Of course, they know everybody who's bought your type of thriller, your type of book in the last month. And so you pay a thousand bucks and they'll send it out to you know a million of their people who bought books. So does it work similar to Facebook ads where you pay them an upfront fee and then they tell you it's going to reach a thousand to 10,000 people or, or whatever? Yeah, I've not done that with, with uh, Amazon yet. I'm, I'm going to fairly soon. Uh, I did that with Facebook and I've got uh, 4,000... 550 friends on Facebook. I sent it out myself and got zero sales. I then paid Facebook to send it out, hoping for a larger exposure to people than zero sales. I was very, very uh, little response from Facebook. Uh, but at the same time, I have 900 people in my personal email from U.S. Marshals to high school and college friends, and I sold, I think, three or four books. It's shocking how few people buy uh, printed novels today. Well, people are reading a lot less. I used to read about 35 books a year. I don't read nearly as much because I read articles online. I read blogs and I'm on Twitter. So 
I get a lot of information from there. And yeah, if it weren't for Twitter, I would spend a lot more time reading. There's a guy, Gary V, who is a big time online marketer, Gary Vaynerchuk. And he talks about how underpriced social media is nowadays. So he says that never before in the history of the world have you been able to target specifically who it is that you want to target. You know, because generally in the in the past you would pay for a billboard or a magazine ad. You don't know who it's reaching really, uh, but nowadays you can pay to reach, let's say, between twelve and fifteen thousand people. But what you're saying is, although you can choose the demographic, choose how many people, choose how much you want to spend, there are no guarantees. You're pretty much sending it into a black hole. And the way that Facebook works nowadays is. They want you to pay in order to reach even your own followers. Because if you posted right now, hey, Brad's over here, we're doing a podcast, that wouldn't reach but about, you said you have 4,500 friends. That would probably reach maybe 500 of your friends. Uh, I've heard less than that. I've heard more than that. I don't know, but it's uh, certainly shocking how few people it does reach. What can you do to to sell books? I I give talks frequently to Rotary Clubs. There's uh, 37 Rotary Clubs just here in Harris County. Uh, And you sell five, six books when you do that. you got to be your own marketing machine. You have to get out there and tell people what you do. I carry business cards. Uh, I used to go to wine bars, have a glass of wine, happy hour, strike up a conversation. And people are, they're always interested in, oh, you're an author. That's so cool. And I used to think the same thing, except that you hand them your card and you look and you don't get any book orders. And uh, of course, last week I went to one and, and a guy bought a book. And next time I walked in there, it was, uh, uh, everybody was talking about it. So, uh, did that generate book sales? Not yet. People have a limited amount of time and everybody is trying to capture that time. And people are much more likely to sit down in front of Netflix than sit down with a book. And- Unfortunately, I think you're, I think you're correct there. Um, I'll tell you the story about, as I said earlier, Tom Clancy spent seven years, could not get an agent. John Grisham is a classic. He spent five years, could not get an agent, sold a book called uh, Time to Kill, uh, I think he got, uh, I think it was $160,000. When you think about it, that's not bad, except he spent five, six years writing that and trying to market it. And then his second book called The Firm, I think he got a small advance, like 200 k And then they made a movie about it, and they reissued the first two books. They became international bestsellers. And he got almost $20 million for his third book before he wrote a single word. That's the club I want to be belong to. <laughs> so if you wanted your book to become a movie, how would you go about doing that? I actually had a, f- a friend of mine who owns a stunt company in Dallas writing a screenplay. And, and he actually had uh, some good outlets. Promise he became a second unit movie director. His name is Ben Loggins. Uh, he's done a lot of, a lot of movies um, as far as uh, the stunt side. But I was his first effort, and he just could not produce the screenplay in time. So I finally said, let's stop. And let's wait until you know, I get an agent and uh, – get my book out there uh so bottom line is um i can i can pick up a program to help write my screenplay the problem the difference is this i write a book i i paint the picture for you in words it may take a half a page or a page to show you uh, what's called a establishing shot where in a movie we right now we're sitting in my living room a one second shot with the camera you suddenly see artwork you see that all the things around us uh, where in my book, I have to set that up in a page. I have to tell you. So I'm not a very good candidate to be a screenwriter. Okay, It's a, two different mindsets to, to do uh, two-dimensional, which I do, and three-dimensional uh, as far as the uh, uh, a movie. 
Speaking of this living room, this place is excellently decorated. <laughs> I, I have the place next door, and it always made me feel bad to peek into this place and see how nice it was. <laughs> we collect art and uh, three-dimensional crystal. So. And you've been with your girlfriend for eight years. Eight years, yeah. Do you marry at your age? Are you in your 60s? I'm 64. Why? The question is why. She's very independently, financially independent, and, and I am too. We just... Um, She's my uh, my my daughter's bonus mom. My daughter calls my girlfriend my her bonus mom after her mom passed away, and so I'm I'm really blessed to have this one. She's a she's a keeper. Yeah, she's really nice. I've met her many times. My grandma dated three different men after my grandfather passed away. She was she was probably seventy five when my papa passed away. And we always said that she was just killing them one after one after the next because, yeah, but it was really cool. I got to meet some incredible people. Like one of them I was a pallbearer for. He was a World War II vet. And a lot of those guys didn't share their stories until they were encouraged to do so before they died. And so his story got put online. And um, I remember they played taps at his funeral and I got the chills and I, I wrote a blog post about it. I think it was called Remembering D-Day. One of the one of the really cool things about my grandma dating after being married to my papa for 45 years was me getting to meet these incredible men because I just love to pick the brains of older, wiser folks like yourself. Not saying you're not near my grandpa. Yeah, yeah, anything, yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, it's so interesting because um, yeah, I always wonder like if my wife died when I was when I was older was there's no point in marrying again, right? It's just, but to have a companion that you enjoy is so important. My dad died in 1991. And five years later, my mom introduced Ed to our family and Ed is now 90. She's 86. She's been with him 25 years. Wow. And as she says, she's been blessed in her life to have two true loves, which are my dad and, and Ed. And, mm -hmm. and Ed is, is a, a, a wonderful addition to our family and, uh, and his family is too. Uh, so, Anyway, it's uh, relationships are very special. I've met your wife a number of times. She's way too pretty for you, True. but you are blessed. Too. I am. I'm a lucky man. Let's talk about politics, because I always tell people before they come on the show, people are people really enjoy talking about things that they're passionate about. That's when they're at their best. And you and I are Facebook friends, and I see you posting a lot of a lot of memes and stuff that would support conservative politics and i'm comfortable talking to people on both sides of the aisle i try to steer clear of politics but since you're passionate about it i enjoy talking about it would you mind talking about politics a little bit do you have a favorite president of all time uh first of all i have to say reagan not because he appointed me twice as deputy u.s marshal sign my papers but uh, because of what he did for this country number two is trump i, I enjoyed both bushes clinton i didn't care for um but again, it's the it's the liberal leanings of financial, you know, the welfare and all that stuff versus conservative leaning. But we have the lowest unemployment of blacks, Asians in in the last in history, I think, and the lowest un unemployment rate in the last fifty years. Uh, my investment portfolio is up thirty eight percent in three years. Okay, it, people believe in this economy because they believe in our president because he's a pro capitalist president, and I'm tired of the candy ass stuff we went through for eight years which uh, every, everything from ruining school lunches from michelle obama to to uh, uh anti-police i'm just, just tired of it so i'm uh 
we're in a good place. I, I'm strongly supporting Trump uh, in this next election, and I think he'll, he'll do quite well. When you say you're strongly supporting him, are you going to canvas? or? I do, and uh, I'm also volunteering for at the uh, polls. Um, I did that uh, three years ago, and we actually saw vanfuls of people being unloaded at, at uh, polling one of the places, one polling place I was at, and uh, like seven people got out. They all had crisp fifty dollar bills in their pocket, and they all came to vote and said they and gave them all the same address. And only because one of the poll watchers, my friend, was watching, they called the Houston Police Department, and they they took them into custody. They were illegals number one. They were paid to come and do this and organize. They got the license plate of the van. They tracked people down. That happens all over this country, millions of times every election. So I'm really hoping there's a lot of conservative people that will, will stand up because the people that work in polls now tend to be Democrats and tend to be very liberal when it comes to people not having ID. Of course, now we have an issue with certain jurisdictions are giving licenses to undocumented. Uh, they're illegal aliens. I don't call them undocumented. They're just illegal aliens. So it's we, we've got to stop. We have to have voter ID of some fashion. Uh, when you have a jurisdiction somewhere in California that had 30% more people registered to vote than lived in that county, we, we have a problem. So they've got to cure this uh, to have fair elections. And Yeah, the other side of the political aisle would say that voter ID is voter suppression. And it's funny, they've done interviews with people on the streets of New York City and said, would you, do you have an ID? And they're like, of course I do. Okay, and if you didn't have an ID, would you know where to get one? Yeah, 45th and 17. Uh, so yeah, people, um, I guess it falls under the think, the line of thinking that is the soft bigotry of low expectations. I don't know who coined that term, but it tends to be, I don't know about you, but whenever I hear people accuse others of being racist or intolerant, I start from the position that the accuser is those things and sort of work out from there. I think there's a lot of projection going on in politics. And perhaps the most interesting phenomenon that we're witnessing now is it's not an official diagnosis, or at least not yet, but, and I would like to think that both sides of the political aisle could recognize what is known as Trump derangement syndrome or TDS, right? It's a, TDS is a term often used to mock those on the left side of the political aisle who have such a strong and emotional reaction to Donald Trump that they're unable to think clearly. And witnessing it in real time is, it's a fascinating thing because you're watching someone struggle not to conflate intellectualism and emotionalism. And we've never seen anything like this before. Um, Have you ever witnessed what the right calls TDS in real time. Oh yeah, I have. And, and I got to tell you, it's pathetic <laughs> when, when the people on the left, as we say, have to have safe spaces. Uh, I mean, the term "wuss" comes up in, in my mind quickly. But the bottom line: How will that person ever exist in real life when they get older? How are they going to hold a job when in this disparaging workplace where people have different opinions? When you can't say something, they can see a red hat that says "mag" on the front, and they come and attack you. Well, I guarantee you that if I had one on today, nobody that would not happen in Texas. Mm. It would not happen. Um, California, maybe, and then they have hell to pay. But it just is a. It's a, uh, my daughter is is a thirty years old, and she hates politics because she's seen this on both sides. She just doesn't even she doesn't vote. And I'm trying to tell her she's 
part of the problem now. We need to, <laughs> to correct this. But uh, the old adage, if you turn 21 and get out of college, you're not liberal, you don't have a heart. But if you turn 30 and you're not a conservative, you don't have a brain. <laughs> I should use that in the book, shouldn't I? I, yeah, I've heard it before. Usually I hear 20 and 40, but the problem is people on both sides think that they have logic and facts on their side. Well, my portfolio and my uh, and their unemployment rate and the number of jobs brought back to this country uh, that was supposedly, according to Obama, were never coming back um, speaks otherwise. So I will stay on my side of the fence, <laughs> gladly so, and... Uh, and support that. I, I do uh, believe in people's individual right to vote for what they believe in, but I also believe in the fact that we need to be fair about this, and that's why I, I volunteer at the polls. The history of the world, though, is once a country becomes really prosperous, you tend to have people who want to make things quote-unquote fair, and fairness is a subjective thing, but the history of the world is prosper, redistribute, prosper, redistribute. So it was only a matter of time when you have low unemployment rates. Our left is going to find something racist in an innocuous word, or they're going to they're going to complain about inequality if the economy is booming because People don't understand that in America, we don't have poverty. We have relative poverty. And that's something that becomes glaringly obvious to me when I travel is I've been in people's straw huts where they live. I've, I've pissed in the hole in the ground that they used to piss. Uh, they don't have clean water. They're lucky if they get meat once a month. Some awful situations. And it really makes you grateful for living in America. I just think that it's inevitable that if you're going to have all of this prosperity and everybody working where you're going to have somebody who the only thing that they can do is try to do a money grab, confiscate the money and redistribute it. So I think when you understand that there's less emotion, but if you are of the type that believes that a rising tide lifts all boats, then you should probably get to the polls and vote right because the, over the last 20 or 30 years, millions and millions of people have been lifted out of poverty. But that's not the stuff that makes the news. But that's also complacency. I don't think anybody, I don't know of any conservative that doesn't want to help people who cannot work. We all want to do that. We're, we're a great country. We're benevolent with that. It's that we're tired of supporting people who don't want to work. There's a big difference. There are people that live here who can't work and they're getting social benefits, I'm sure. Uh, may, may, maybe age or whatever, but but the bottom line, we don't mind helping those people. We never have. It's the people who don't want to work. And it, we're getting tired of this. It's uh... When you become prosperous as we are now, you get people who want to transform our government into more of a European-style socialism. And what you say is true. In America, we tend to be more benevolent. We give more to charity and volunteer more time than any country in the world, as far as I know. Uh, I have an interesting story. When I went to visit my buddy in Germany, this was back in 2014 or so, when I used to make a lot of money, I was telling him about the checks that I used to write to charities or give to the baseball program where I went to school. And he said, to me, this is crazy. 
And the reason he said that that was crazy is because it's ingrained in them to rely on the government to take care of people. Whereas we in America think that if you can't take care of yourself, then your friends, your family, your church, uh, NGOs, anything but the government. The government should be there to to protect us from foreign enemies, to protect us from criminals within the country, but only be a safety net as a last resort. Is that along the lines of of your thinking of how our government should operate? Yeah, yes, it is. And uh, it, it is. Uh, I was married in Denmark. Denmark is one of the oldest social uh, stru- uh, welfare structures in the world. And I remember my father-in-law coming over here and saying, you know, you have to be wealthy to be able to afford to go to the best doctors. He said, in Denmark, I can go to any doctors I want to. Yet when he had cancer, he came to this country for, for treatments. He didn't didn't do it in Denmark. You have people in, in throughout Europe that come here for treatment. We have a better system. To support that system, uh, socialized medicine is not it, but there's a capitalistic way to have insurance and pay premiums. If you can't pay premiums, we'll help you. I'm a taxpayer. I would love to help people who can't do it. I don't want to help people who don't want to do it. Big difference. It seems like we should be able to allocate a lot of money to be able to distinguish between those who can help themselves and between between those who can help themselves and those who can't. To me, that would be worth a trillion dollars <laughs> to see if there was some way to figure out who is able-bodied and who is not. Would you'd be in favor of that? I would be in favor. I mean, that's a lot of money, but that uh, I would start with, you know, if you're going to take welfare, which we are paying for as taxpayers, you should not be able to be a smoker. I used to be one, so I'm telling you, you should not be able to afford cigarettes. You should be able to afford tattoos. You shouldn't have to have, you know, uh, a brand new car um, when the rest of us don't. It's just uh, there's got to be some criteria to tell who needs it, who doesn't. Yeah. As far as affording things goes, I was in Prague recently and they have 15 Starbucks that have gone up since the first time I visited there in 2015. 15 new Starbucks. And Prague isn't that big. Every one of those Starbucks is packed with people and they're buying, would you believe the prices of a cup of coffee are the same there as they are here? The average wage in Czech Republic is about $800 a month. So as a percentage of their income, they're spending a huge amount of money on coffee and some people I see in there every day. So it does not matter to them if they can quote unquote afford it. If they have the money in their pocket, they're going to spend it. It's a social concept. I have fun. I don't drink coffee, but I go to Starbucks, order coffee, and tell them my last name is Trump. <laughs> and when they bring the coffee, they have to yell my name out. You cannot believe how many people are are affected by that. <laughs> kind of fun. It's a sport, actually. I was explaining to someone who is anti-Trump recently where the concept of fake news came from. If you remember in 2016... Hillary Clinton lost the election and many of her supporters came up with excuses as to why she lost. And they rattled off, I don't know, 20 or 2000 things as to why she lost. And one of them was Trump supporters were so stupid that they would read an ad on Facebook that was obviously a National Enquirer type of ad. It's sort of like the new National Enquirer, except it's online where people post these fake advertisement articles. And 
they branded that fake news and they said that it was persuading Trump supporters to vote or maybe they were neutral. But those articles pushed them over the top. And so because of fake news is why Trump won. Again, it was one of the many reasons that they gave. And so what Trump did was he co-opted the term and said, fake news, you got to be kidding me. You guys are fake news. And so he used CNN as an example. He uses them a lot of a network that intentionally promotes fake news. (laughs) What do you think of this new phenomenon? By the way, when I have experienced Trump derangement syndrome, it has been when I tell a story like that, just trying to give factual information, you can see the emotion on their face. You can see it building up. And then they're not able to have a rational discussion because if you give them factual information, one, they think that you're a Trump supporter. Two, they think because you're a because they think you're a Trump supporter, you're then unworthy of having a conversation with because why would you spend time talking to someone who's racist, sexist, homophobic, bigoted, all of that stuff? So what do you make of this fake news phenomenon? Well, a few things. I'll tell you, 35 years ago, I was interviewed four times uh, as a deputy U.S. marshal. Uh, and each of the four times, my words were edited out and changed where the ultimate interview was a totally different thing than what was fact, what I'd said. So I learned very quickly. They told us this in Academy. I learned very quickly, don't do interviews. The news media, even back then, news media will, will change it around to fit their picture. I have found a station called AONs, America One Network. It tends to be where all the, even some of the Fox uh, commentators and reporters uh, who've left Fox's because it's gotten a little bit too liberal. They, they go over there. So I would invite anybody to listen to, go listen to CNN, listen to AON as a balance. And you'll be shocked at what's reported on AON that you'll never hear on CNN and vice versa. So it's a pretty good balance if you listen to both of them uh, to get what might be some mixture of, of, of truth. The truth hurts sometimes. Don't you think that that's why some people avoid it? Probably so, but... It still is reality. You got to live in reality. There's uh, there are people that live in a false reality, and it's it's influenced by limiting your sources. <clears throat> As a scientist, if you listen to only one set of data, an example of this is uh, climate change. I had a friend who's uh, let's say a highly degreed meteorologist. When Obama went to Copenhagen, Copenhagen Accord was about to write a ten billion dollar check. Um, somebody discovered at the East Anglia University in England, and that's the repository for international climate change records. Uh, they found a room in the back with 14 locked file cabinets. And those are all the reports that had anything to do with the fact there was no climate change. There was no uh, weather change. And the problem is uh, a government agency that produced a lot of data uh, about climate change, and back then they called it uh, global warming, uh, but yet they never considered that. They were locked up in file cabinet. If you can't consider a whole, the whole thing, how do you come up with, a, with an opinion scientifically, but hopefully but centrist in the center based on all the data you've got? If you only listen to one set of criteria that's over here, your, your opinion is going to be over here. Well, that's what confirmation bias is, right? You're, yes. you're avoiding facts that would disconfirm your opinion. And so if you have an initial opinion over there, you're not a scientist. <laughs> yeah. And the, the problem with confirmation bias, too, is that you can't recognize your own usually, but someone else's is glaring. 
So if seeing Trump or hearing his voice causes you to feel something, anything, you need to then actively seek information on the other side. It's the same thing when from 2008 to 2016, if you watched Obama and you started to get angry just by the sound of his voice, that should that should cause pause for reflection to where you say, you know what, I'm having an emotional reaction. Why don't I make sure that I'm getting information on both sides of the aisle? Because because then you can draw your own conclusions with less emotion. You, when you understand things, there's less emotion. The problem was all the CNN anchors like Anderson Cooper and Cuomo, all of those guys won't tell you that they're left wing. And so from 2008 to 2016, they're presenting themselves as objective. But all of those, none of those folks are voting conservative. So one of the benefits of Trump was that he sort of ripped a, the <laughs> ripped a hole in this idea that our media was fair and objective. Because they're not, but and they haven't been for a long time. Uh, so it's it's very interesting to see. With regard to climate change, I find that many people who think that we need to create a sort of artificial economy to where we're taxing emissions and things like that, they tend to not understand economics. One of my favorite podcasters is Joe Rogan, and he will admit it. He admits that he doesn't understand basic economics, but it doesn't preclude him from having an opinion on climate change. It needs to be considered whether or not the argument for reshaping our economy to prevent the climate from changing. It needs to be considered whether that is a Trojan horse for economic redistribution. If you hear me say that and you have a visceral reaction, that should cause reflection because all I'm giving you is what one side of the political aisle considers. Like, wait, wait a minute. A lot of times the left values equality above even the truth. If, if you have as your highest value equality, you're, you're going to try to achieve your ideal of equality by pretty much any means necessary. So if it means, if it's true what you said about hiding information and that helps you to push through a climate change agenda, I wouldn't put it past them. And so country, uh, countries like India and China probably are not going to remake their economies when they're still trying to become as successful as we have become, right? I think that's why we pulled out of the Paris Accords. Am I right? You have these countries who are self-reporting that they're reducing emissions or whatever, and Trump comes in and says, there's nobody holding these people accountable. We're not going to slow down our economy. So those who are considered climate science deniers or whatever they call them, climate deniers, those people tend to think that with the advancement of technology and how costs get reduced over time, that if the climate is changing as rapidly as those on the other side of the political aisle say it is, that we're going to be able to find a solution. And the best example I can think of would be solar panels. If you bought solar panels when they first came out, you probably paid about five times as much as you could have paid three years later as the technology got better, as they became a whole lot cheaper. So I've seen statistics where 
Uh, we're going to it's going to cost us 10 trillion dollars over the next 80 years if we don't do something about climate change. Well, when you factor in compound interest and the advancements in technology over the next 80 years, you could have GDP growth of 75 trillion dollars. So anyway, I, I just think that people should gather information on both sides on the climate change stuff, too. Well, my meteorologist friend said that one burp from Mount St. Helens volcano that lasts for 30 minutes puts more carbon in our atmosphere than man has ever produced in the entire being on this world. So no matter how, even though our country has reduced carbon emissions more than any other country, China, Europe, um, it, it all takes one burp from a volcano to offset that. So the fact that we have influenced climate that much, I think is a reach. It's a huge, it's a volumetric thing. How many cubic trillions, quadrillions of cubic uh, square feet of, of atmosphere is there versus uh, the emissions from a, a car? Um, How many friends have you lost due to your political views? Several hundred. Several hundred. And, and uh, uh, oh, it's a attrition of Facebook, for instance, and they make comments. I, I disagree with them vocally. Um, and then they're not my friends anymore. Did you ever know anyone who disowned a friend because they were an Obama supporter? I never dis unfriended anybody who's an Obama supporter. I invited their their comments, their opinions. Um, I I would suddenly notice they were no longer my friends because they didn't want to be friends with me. Based on all that I've said, it probably sounds as though I'm a right winger, but there are left wing positions that I support. Do you support any? anything on the left i do i've been the only law enforcement person i know who's always advocated for legalization of marijuana but way back, way back when 35 years ago it was not uh politically correct to say that i've always said once you can determine marijuana intoxication on the side of the road like we do alcohol and then sell it through through uh, liquor stores where you control the age of the person buying it and uh and you, you hold them accountable if they're if they're intoxicated um but you tax the hell out of it. That pays for the you know, lung cancer treatments. I mean, it, it helps pay for everything the government's spending on the smokers. Well, we're headed there because it's legal in quite a few states, right? It is. Uh, seven now. It's interesting to note, though, that the people that sell the marijuana still cannot deposit those funds in a FDIC or FSLIC bank. I didn't know that. It's still a violation of federal law. Hmm. So the problem they have is what do they do with all the cash? And there's a, a, quite a business growing up for armored cars, taking the money from, for instance, Colorado um, to other places to, uh, I wouldn't say launder, but to, uh, to deposit their cash. I'm going to ask you some fun, quick questions, if that's all right with you, and then sure. we'll wrap up. What would you do with a million dollars if somebody dropped it in your lap tomorrow? I would get back into car racing, buy a, the latest Ferrari Superfast is the model, and I drive the world uh, for our world WSC racing championship. I could eat up that million dollars pretty quickly that way. <laughs> Have you always been a conservative? No, I was actually fairly liberal. Come high school, my family's liberal um, to a fault. And it was until I got out in the world as a, in law enforcement that I saw what really happened in, the, for instance, minority communities. Um, I tried to help people do, and just they didn't want help. It, um, anyway, I, over 10 years, I became a conservative. So it was being in law enforcement that sent you to the other side of the political aisle. Yes. Well, then I opened up a business with my then wife, and and the taxation structures um, changed quite a bit under uh, Clinton. 
and uh, you know, he's he's the one reason I started taxing Social Security and that that sort of thing. And uh, anyway, I just became a conservative because I was exposed to real life. <laughs> Rush Limbaugh or Sean Hannity? Both. <laughs> and by the way, I say my prayers every day for for Rush. He's uh, he's facing a huge battle with his stage four lung cancer. I'm going to say something else that would make many listeners think that I'm an extreme right winger, but I think that Rush Limbaugh is a genius. His intellect is so huge that if you can talk for three hours, and I and I have a new appreciation for it now that I'm now that I have a microphone every week. But the intellectual heft of that guy is so immense. Absolutely. Uh, the, the fact that people can't appreciate that on the other side of the political aisle bothers me a little bit, but they tend to value degrees, master's degrees and things like that. Mark Levin or Michael Berry? Michael Berry. <laughs> Love the guy. Have you ever met him? Yes. What about Reagan? Did you, did you meet President Reagan? Twice. Wow. You have a picture? No, but I have a Medal of Merit for President Reagan. Very cool. Here on the shelf. Uh, last question. Where can people connect with you online and find your books? Uh, uh for the printed book. They come to you autographed. The uh, e-books are available on Amazon in Kindle form. Uh, have a new website coming out next week. Um uh, they're fun books. The third book will be out this summer called Stratosphere. That's F-E-A-R and into that. It's a fun book. Um, I have 17 more outlines after that. So <laughs> at my age, I've got myself way into into my 70s. So anyway, I have uh, a lot of fun writing and uh, enjoy meeting people like Brad here. <laughs> well, I appreciate you coming on the show. One last question I forgot to ask. Does Trump win in a landslide in 2020? Yes, Absolutely. Thank you for being on, Steve. I Thanks for having me. Enjoyed seeing you. Friends, thank you for joining us today. I hope you didn't mind the political talk. I'm not trying to turn this into a political show, but I got to speak to a staunch conservative with some strong opinions. And so I wanted him to be able to voice those opinions so that you can draw your own conclusions. I appreciate your, you spending your time with us. If you would like to follow my adventures on Instagram and Twitter, I am at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks. 